This series of Thanks a Million is brought to you by Sweaty Betty. I have been testing out Sweaty Betty's all day leggings and I have to say I am a big, big fan and I'm with child in this moment so that is saying something. They're a little thicker than some of the other ones, the power for example, and pass the squat test. It's a big 10 out of 10, you know the one, squatting down, still not seeing anything that should be kept for private time. Yeah, the sweat wicking and quick drying material means that if you're into weights or hardcore cardio, they are absolutely ideal, but they're also super soft. So you might just want to keep them on all day, which is what I'm doing. And there's not much weightlifting going on. I can tell you that. So if you're after a staple pair of leggings that you can wear with just about anything, look no further because Sweaty Betty has given me an exclusive 20% off code to share with you, my dear podcast listeners. Use the code thanks a million to get yours now. Freckles in odd places, surprise engagements and long weekend brunches. There are a million things I'm thankful for today, but what is my guest thankful for? It's really taught me that there are different phases to friendship too. You can have a terrible argument as long as you both own up to your part in it and talk about it and work out Mm. what was at the root of it. You can salvage that friendship and become really close again. I'm Angela Scanlon and welcome to Thanks A Million, where we explore our guests' personal gratitude lists to find out the things that have shaped their lives. Gratitude is your soul's superfood, but cheaper than goji berries and twice as good for you. In this series, we talk thanks with the good, the great and the grateful. Today's guest has been teaching us all how to fail better. And for that, we are incredibly thankful. It is, of course, award-winning author and broadcaster Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth's chart-topping podcast, How to Fail, is a huge success with sellout events, all in the name of celebrating the things that haven't gone right, with guests such as Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Gloria Steinem, Andrew Scott, Lily Allen and Stanley Tucci, to name just a few of the casual heavy hitters she's had on the podcast. From that very podcast came the amazing memoir, How to Fail and Philosophy, a handbook for when things go wrong. Both come highly recommended. I suggest you read them with a pen and don't get too offended by the dog ears because you'll want to mark and revisit lots of things. As well as holding a double first in history from Cambridge, Elizabeth has written extensively as a journalist for numerous big name publications. The Telegraph, The Times, The Guardian, New York Magazine, The Observer, Vogue, should I go on? She regularly presents on Radio 4's Open Book and Sky Arts Book Club Live and has released five novels. Her latest Magpie was published last year and became an instant Sunday Times bestseller and has just launched in the US is flying it, or so Instagram tells me. Magpie looks at jealousy, infertility and motherhood and is described as a deliciously sinister and engrossing read. It's incredible. Although you can't tell from her accent, which clearly didn't rub off, Elizabeth grew up in Northern Ireland. You know how much I love an Irish connection and her first job was for the Derry Journal, no less. Hasn't she soared? It was amazing to dive into what she has been thankful for along the way. But before we start to chat about box tea and butter, let's see what three things you, the listeners, are thankful for. Design Day's Cork. Cold crisp morning hot chocolate saw two otters. Nice, to the point. No embellishment. Bish bash bosh. I'm grateful that I got to paint today. I'm thankful that the fire alarm today at college was a hoax and nobody got hurt. And also 
that I saw your pretty face on your post. Oh, thanks. Carla Kilpatrick Jewellery. I'm grateful for meeting up with an old friend, being reassured that leaving my job was absolutely the right thing to do. And a coffee in the warmth of the sun. Lovely. Now for the main event, Elizabeth Day. In our chat, we cover our favourite foods and reality TV. There's quite a bit of chat on reality TV. <laughs> and when Elizabeth was saying goodbye, she was getting ready to welcome a camera crew in. Now, there is a chance that I'm extremely gullible and she was taking the piss out of me, but she was apparently going to do a chat for a documentary about Selling Sunset. I think that was it. Friendships, we talk a lot about friendship. People-pleasing and moving away from that. And of course, failure. Elizabeth is incredibly eloquent and also a lot of fun. Here she is, Elizabeth Day. Good morning, Elizabeth Day. Good morning, Angela Scanlon. It's so nice to be here. It's so lovely to have you. It's been busy for you recently. I feel like it's always busy for you. Yes, I think that's my coping mechanism in life Mm. is just to make myself as busy as possible so I don't think about existential fear. (laughs) And I enjoy what I do. (laughs) That's my default as well, actually. I remember a friend saying to me, work is a great addiction to have. (laughs) Definitely. Like of all the addictions. Yes, it's very productive (laughs) Mm. until you get to the point where you've worked yourself so hard that you're just like you just I feel overwhelmed and exhausted and then can't do anything for a bit and I'm extremely competitive as well which I'm working on (laughs) which I need to get over so am I what is that about so am I I've no idea where does that come from so I've done a lot of thinking on this because I think Mm. for me it comes from a belief in scarcity rather than abundance 100%. And I think that's something that a lot of women struggle with because, not to get too political within the first five minutes, but the patriarchy wants us to think that. There's only one of you at the exactly. table. Exactly. That's all the space there yeah. is. And um, and so I think I just felt that from a very, very young age and it just proliferates into areas of my life that it's not healthy. It's yeah. not healthy for me to think every time I go on a run, which happens very infrequently, I need to be faster than that person in an annoying matching Lycra. Like, why am I doing that to myself? Why am I not happy doing what I do to the best of my ability? At your own yeah. pace. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, sometimes it's good, that little edge to kick you on, but it can be quite... Um, it can be quite toxic. I mean, I definitely, when I'm not in a great space and when there's not much balance in my life, I collect enemies. I mean, they don't know they're enemies, but they're like targets in my mind. So do that I. I. It's so awful. Roy's Wait. like, oh, who's the enemy now? What this star week, sign are you? I'm a Capricorn. Oh, I'm a Scorpio. You see, Scorpios okay. are well known for holding grudges. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I've, uh, yeah, <laughs> I can relate with that. There's a couple in my family. Yeah, very silent kind of grudges. So, <laughs> absolutely, we're like um, Arya Stark in Game of Thrones. We have our little book. We have the names. But I, I just before I freak everyone out, um, I do forgive. I just never forget. I've just, yeah. I'm just blessed with a very long memory for people who've done me wrong. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're fine. We're cool. It's civil. But do it again and you're fucked. (laughs) Yeah, I respect that. Um, Okay, so what are you, apart from your enemies and your black book, uh, what are you grateful for today? Today, I'm really grateful for toast and Marmite. Mm. 
I said, mm, at the toast bit, not so much at the Marmite. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, well, that's what that was. You sort of tailed off at the end. Mm. <laughs> um, I, well, I happen to love Marmite and I know it's one of those things that divides people. But the reason I am particularly grateful for toast and Marmite this morning is because I did that thing where I woke up and I took 567 multivitamins. <laughs> yeah, rattling around the house. Just rattling. It just I was just rattling and occasionally that makes me feel a bit nauseous if I do it on an empty stomach. Yeah. And sure enough, I had an hour of being like, I feel really sick and I should be feeling really healthy because I've just taken all of these multivitamins. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I think it's because I forgot to eat. So I made myself mm. some toasted rye bread, slathered it with butter, slathered it with Marmite, ate it, felt a million percent better. And I'm just so grateful for that particular combination of flavors because it's salty I'm a very savory person but it also feels like it's healthy I mean apart from Mm. the butter it feels quite healthy for me see I think butter is good on many levels apparently it's really good for your gut and I don't mean like just the one that hangs over your (laughs) jeans I mean like there's a lot of like good stuff in there so I'm not big on dairy but I oh butter on toast is so so, so good. good especially salted butter oh yeah have you tried Kerrygold yes I'm literally oh, yeah. salivating so, you know? <laughs> so am I that's actually a bit embarrassing <laughs> but also I like to sprinkle an extra little bit on so uh, a bit of salt on the yes. top totally delicious yeah. Can, can I ask you an Irish question? Of course. So I grew up in the north of Ireland and I know you're southern. Yeah. But did you have potato cakes? Did I what? <laughs> so <laughs> there are lots of regional versions of these. So my potato cake might be a little different to yours. So there is a name on them in Northern Ireland. That's not potato cakes, isn't it? Falls. Potato falls. There you go. Yeah. Pota- yeah. yeah. <laughs> so can you make them? I've never tried because the ones okay. that I particularly loved, they were quite basic. Like as in, mm. if they were sort of potato equivalent of a pop tart. I put them yes. in the toaster to toast them, and they were quite square. Flat. Yeah, square. Yeah. Oh my gosh, they were so good with loads and loads of butter on them, and the butter doesn't sink in, so it's quite like it slips yes. all around the place. It's shiny. It's like a glaze. <laughs> but you can lick it off without it looking obnoxious. <laughs> it's, oh, they're divine. So we did have potato cakes. My mom used to make them. And my granny was very famous for her potato cakes. So like really flowery and they were the homemade ones. So the butter would go into them a bit more. But then my dad's from Mayo and they have a thing called box tea. So that is, I'm going to, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I think it's more like a farl, but it's raw potato instead of cooked potato goes into the mix. Okay. But like, like rusty almost. Kind of. Yeah, yeah, but not grated. So it's, it's oh no, how you couldn't mash up a potato if <laughs> it was raw. It's just a potato, Angela. Is that what you were saying? You were just given a raw potato. <laughs> yeah, just to lick butter off. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, yeah. But potato cakes, I mean, there's something just so comforting. Yes. About them. Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah, mm. I think it's one of those childhood things that I've spent a lifetime trying to recreate in various forms. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I still love potatoes to this day, but anything that is a vehicle for melted butter, I'm grateful yeah. for. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> okay, the thank fuck for this. 
the thank fuck for this for me and I did think about it but for me ultimately it comes down to the real housewives (laughs) (laughs) I need to watch the real housewives some of my favorite humans on earth are obsessed with this bloody show well, I feel like you and I have so much in common already. The ability to hold a lifelong grudge, our love yeah. of potato cakes. And, and so yeah. I, I feel confident that you would also adore The Real Housewives. Be into it. And for anyone who hasn't had the heavenly pleasure of watching an episode of The Real Housewives, this is this reality TV franchise that has spawned so many pretenders to its greatness and it started off as a an actual documentary a fly on the wall documentary about this group of rich married women in orange county on the west coast of america Mm -hmm. and that became the real housewives of the oc that was the first franchise and essentially all the real housewives programs since then have taken as their model a group of women who often have very aspirational lifestyles, have a great deal of wealth, Mm -hmm. wear amazing clothes, and have a form of friendship with each other. And we follow that dynamic over the course of eight to 10 episodes every season. And then there's a reunion show. Oh. Where everyone airs their beef, and you either come to a loving conclusion or you decide that you're mortally going to hate each other forever. But what's... Mm extraordinary about it is if you leave aside all of the kind of reality tv flim flam if you put to one side the fact that so many of them are really privileged and wealthy the thing that i relate to is that dynamic of female friendship that you don't often see on screen amongst a group of women who are very often like in their 50s and 60s and it's so interesting to see what their preoccupations are and how they handle things like falling out, how there's a great importance placed on kind of owning the shit that you do. So if you've done Mm -hmm. something wrong, it's okay if you own it. And I think reality TV is kind of amazing for making us more emotionally self-aware. And that's been my experience of, of watching The Real Housewives, aside from the fact that it's incredible entertainment and at some of the lowest points in my life, I've said to myself, I'm going to watch an, uh, an episode of The Real Housewives of New York and I know I'll feel better. And for an hour, I won't think about stuff. And also... Pure escape. Pure, it's pure escape, but it also was one of the first places that I saw things I was experiencing in my own life on screen. So it was one of the first places that I saw the reality of IVF portrayed when okay. shortly after I went through it. And just stuff like that. It's literally real women and their lives and I can't get enough of it I think that's so true actually IVF I have so many friends experiencing that at the moment and and that kind of blanket term when you're not in it it's so difficult to appreciate the kind of complexity and the I think people are so awkward around it they don't know what to say how's how's it go like how much detail to probe into um, and it does feel like there's a real dearth of that conversation in in mainstream media. I think so too. I mean, when I did IVF, it was 2014 and I had no idea what, in, what it involved until I started mm. doing it. So I was really ignorant. I thought I'd be taking pills. Yeah. I didn't think I'd be injecting myself every single day and have to go in for 
scans every other day and I didn't think it would take up so much time that it would feel like an extra job and there was a a woman called Megan King Edmonds on the Real Housewives of OC who she was doing IVF and she filmed herself and it was part of the TV program then injecting herself and the bruises that she got after injecting herself and she was very matter-of-fact about it And she was really honest about it. And I just thought, wow, if I'd had that resource when I was going through it, I would have felt much less alone. Mm -hmm. And I think happily that's changing a lot now, but it it was just symbolic of something that The Real Housewives does again and again. And again, on the New York franchise, the last few seasons have been about women in their late 50s and 60s. They've been through marriages. They're either divorced or widowed and they are entering the dating market again and they are dating as single women and I had not seen that anywhere else yeah I mean I know the and just like that is sort of doing that now but I feel like and just like that has been heavily influenced by the Real Housewives franchises and it's been that way around yeah so I love it for for the kind of emotional honesty at the core of the program even if yes it's kind of structured reality and there are producers there and a camera crew and all of that so it can't ever be truly real yeah but there is an emotional honesty to it yeah and you mentioned at the top uh, a form of friendship so it feels like that element of it is is quite constructed or but maybe that's fascinating in the you know unraveling and unfolding of those kind of dynamics you know because we're all so connected now. So there's friendship in the truest, oldest sense, but then, you know, a million acquaintances that people collect nowadays, whether they're I totally agree. And I, yeah, and I think the thing, it started off as a group of real-life friends, and then as the Real Housewives became more and more popular, producers would often try and hire specific people who might fit into the group. But in a way that, as you say, reflects the reality of different friendship circles and the fact Mm -hmm. that you know I before I met you Angela I knew you from Instagram yeah and and that's (laughs) kind of that's sort of really nice in its own way and then I met you and you were even better in person same (laughs) Um, so I think it sort of reflects that and and that's interesting as well as you say to watch Mm. that dynamic unfold Totally. And also, I mean, if you grew up and live in the same place you've always lived, then you can maintain largely that little friendship group. But I think if you've moved away from where you live, then you have grown up friendships that involve a lot of vulnerability. You're basically dating people and hoping they allow you to be in in their lives, you know, so you don't get that kind of slightly. Well, we've always been a fivesome and she's not in the group you know people kind of come in yes although interestingly you do get that from people who've from the ogs who've been there for like 10 seasons if a new woman comes in it's very interesting to see their reaction to that so it's it's almost like anthropological i'm basically the david attenborough of real housewives (laughs) is what i'm saying it's really taught me that there are different phases to friendship too that you can have a terrible argument as long as you both own up to your part in it and talk about it and work out Mm. what was at the root of it, you can salvage that friendship and become really close again. And I think that's something that I'm really scared of. I'm really scared of ending friendships or Mm. conflict. And I suppose The Real Housewives has sort of given me a bit more courage in that respect. 
So it's modelling that you can have a good old bust up and actually it enriches rather than takes from a friendship. Exactly. Yeah, because I'd be exactly the same. Afraid, terrified. I I basically go to freezing people out until, you know, holding a silent grudge, eventually going, oh, maybe... I overreacted 10 months later, silently. Obviously, I'm never going to admit it because she doesn't know I'm mad with her in the first place. (laughs) But I think she might, you know. But yeah, yeah, that kind of seething, silent resentment is so much more toxic than a good old bust up. It is, exactly. And I think, again, I know men have very different, straight men have very different attitudes towards friendship, I think, than a lot of straight women. Yeah. But we're taught to believe that men can just have it out or be really straightforward and and maybe again that's a function of abundance like they feel relaxed in themselves and self-confident enough to do that whereas a lot of women I think are playing catch-up and um and so the real housewives has taught me a lot but I also want to say it is so wildly entertaining and hilarious at the same time (laughs) that you can just watch it without any of these deep profound philosophical thoughts (laughs) You're like, just in case anyone thinks I've slightly lost my mind. But I get it. I I think it's really important to see those things reflected. And I actually do think it's a modelling thing. And if you haven't seen it and then you're suddenly like, oh, that works. I can try that in real life. Yeah. I mean, the reason I have so much to say about it is because I have had to defend my love of I can tell. Like, you can tell. I've, yeah. I've marshaled all of my arguments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's here like when someone says, I love Love Island, and you're like, oh, here we go. And yes. then they start, and they roll out quite, like, robust <laughs> defences. But apparently, the rise in popularity of the Kardashians was kind of in direct correlation to the rise of female executives and stuff like that. Oh, so it was kind of... Yeah, they've looked at it and said that actually those programmes become escape. They allow for women who are in, you know, quite high pressured, full on lives to, you know, just yeah. chill the fuck out. Like maybe like men, sorry, these are like sweeping generalizations, yeah. but like watching sport, you don't need to, it's kind of a release and you can get involved, but not too involved. Definitely. And I also think reality TV has allowed enormous scope for people who might not otherwise, I'm not talking about the real housewives here, but yeah. I'm talking about lots of like, Love Island or Big Brother or mm. Tawi or they potentially provide scope for people who might not have that many life chances to find a viable career. Yeah. And and I don't think that you can undermine or diminish that too much. I think there's mm. so much snobbery around the kinds of people who are attracted to reality TV. Yeah. And a lot of the time that snobbery comes from a place of real privilege Mm -hmm. and so I think it 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 can be quite democratic at the same time yeah Yeah, totally you're like oh hang on that chick I looked down my nose at for being in a bikini in a villa in Morocco is now a billionaire yeah Molly (laughs) May Haig yeah has has made some serious money moves so and I'm not saying that was me how dare you Angela how dare you (laughs) but it is it's like you know the kind of the snobbery around the Kardashians you're like they buy and sell you yeah and the other thing I would say about the Kardashians and generally about reality TV is that it not only is a mirror to the world we live in but it's shaping the world that we Mm. live in so yeah Donald Trump was a reality TV star before he was president. Part of the reason I believe he was elected president is because people got so used to him. He was like 
the sort of slightly demented <laughs> uncle that you saw at family uncle. weddings. <laughs> yeah. But you got kind of used to him yeah. and his eccentricities. And then he suddenly ends up president mm-hmm. of the United States. Kim Kardashian has uh, successfully passed the Californian baby bar and is basically training to be an attorney and is campaigning successfully to get people who've been wrongfully convicted off death row. I think she's kind of amazing. So do I. She's not just fannying around with lip gloss as people may believe, you know. But equally, I think the Jenners, as a young person, and I know it's not realistic that everybody's going to go on a reality TV show and set up a billion dollar business selling makeup, Mm -hmm. okay. But... I do think for like young people to go, here is a young woman who's doing her own thing, who's paving her own path. I mean, obviously, Chris is the puppeteer, but like, it's quite hopeful. Yeah, totally. And actually, as you're talking, I feel that there's very few female-led families that we see on screen who do that. So actually, the men in the Kardashians are the ones with the least power, it feels like. Mm-hmm. And and again, that's infrequent that we see that. And Kris Jenner, yeah. for all of her terrifying momager ways, has built a billion dollar industry through her children. Now, we can, we can absolutely debate the rights and wrongs of that. And clearly there are things yeah. that the Kardashians represent that place young people under an enormous amount of pressure in terms of what they should look like and plastic surgery and all of that but let's not lose sight of something positive that they also Mm. represent because not everything has to be completely one way or the other yeah thank you for coming to my ted talk on reality tv (laughs) (laughs) it was really informative i liked it Is there a thanks that got away? Yes. And I suppose where I automatically went with this are the people that I wasn't able to thank before they died. And I would put two people in that category. One is my beloved late grandfather, so my mother's father, who was really for me the model of a profoundly kind man who had also been very successful and it made me realise that you could be both. He was born into a terraced house in Grimsby with an outside toilet and he won a series of scholarships to grammar school and then to Cambridge and graduated from there and went into the diplomatic service and did really well. And I just find that so admirable and impressive and yet he was so humble with it he also took me seriously so when I was this slightly odd little child who was like I want to write books he really encouraged me to write him stories and he took time to kind of read them and appreciate them and I felt very loved by that act and I suppose I have a sadness that he died when I was at university and he never saw that I did actually end up writing books. And I would have loved to have thanked him for giving me the sense of confidence that I think I needed at that age, Mm -hmm. that I could do it. And I mean, that's quite, it is quite a remarkable thing. So you had that clarity at that age, but also it wasn't just, you know, well, from him considered a silly little, you know, 
craft project. No, and he, I think because he really, he was a really voracious reader. And so he completely appreciated the power of words. I guess because Mm -hmm. of his own life experience as well, he had understood that a mastery of words gets you places as well as being something that can be a lifelong passion. You know, I decided age four that I wanted to write books, which is such a weird thing. (laughs) And so where did that come from? I mean, I'm thinking my daughter is almost four and I can't imagine her having... She should get a CV together. Get on it. Clarity. (laughs) Get your shit together, girl. Wow. It's so odd, but I do distinctly remember it. The only place I can think that it did come from is love of books. So... I was so lucky to grow up in a household that had lots of books in it. And my mother read to me from a very, very young age. And I think I just loved the tangible object, but also the imaginative leap of fancy that I could make with a book. And I think it was literally as simple as that, that I just liked books. And then I started saying it and then people are are sort of charmed by a young child being like, I want to be an author. (laughs) They're either charmed or or repulsed. But but I was, again, really lucky that at school, I was kind of encouraged to write. Like, writing became my thing. And so then, because I was doing it more, I became good at it. And so then, for me, I got approval for it. And that was very important to kind of my sense of identity. I was constantly wanting people to approve and like me, which... That had a whole other side effect, you know, later on in life. But in terms of writing, I just kind of kept on doing it. And generally speaking, when you keep on doing something, you get a bit better at it. So, I mean, your 10,000 hours, you must have banked them by the time you were eight. (laughs) (laughs) This child prodigy, she's spitting out books left, right and centre. I'm very grateful now for the fact that I did have such a clear idea of what I wanted to do because I know most people don't. But in a way, it kind of lessened my choices in a really healthy way because I think we live in such a world of plenty that sometimes choice can be so anxiety inducing and you just don't know which way to turn. Yeah, yeah, and debilitating. It's like, Jesus, I don't, I actually have no idea where to go. I've tried on I don't know how many occasions to design a pair of Nike (laughs) trainers. I'm presented with all of these different options, which is a gift. Yeah. That's the whole gig. But I'm like, no, 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 I can't. I can't. I, I just can't make these decisions. All of the things that I did um, up until now kind of make sense in hindsight. But I remember always being quite jealous of people. And usually it was actors or sports people. And that kind of laser sharp clarity from a young age. Yeah kind of means I think you're kind of into you know manifesting or creation and all of that kind of stuff like imagine if from four you have a visual of where you want to go that's like yeah it's quite powerful I'd actually never thought of it like that in terms of kind of manifestation before I understood what that was but I think you're right that it's so interesting talking about it in this context because I was so sure of myself in that one element I was so sure of writing Mm. and the older you get and I'm sure lots of people experience this the less certain you become about the world around you and the less sure you become of your own opinions and your own instincts and my experience was was that I lost my way in other respects but writing was always the constant so that Mm. thing I spoke about earlier about always seeking people's approval that grew into a full-blown case of people-pleasing 
And during my 20s, up to my mid-30s, I didn't really know what I wanted in my personal life, for instance. So I was constantly just doing whatever anyone else wanted or my partner would ask where I wanted to go for lunch. I was like, I just don't know. I don't, like, you go, you choose. I had lost sight of my own desires. And then the second half of my adult life has been a recovery of that childhood instinct almost a sort of trusting my instinct so if I get offered something and it seems like a really great professional opportunity but I don't feel it in my gut my butter lined gut (laughs) yeah (laughs) then I I kind of now know to say no so uh, it's yeah I think we sort of almost rediscover our childhood instincts the older we get I mean I think that's literally the gig do you (laughs) Yeah, I really do. I think we know ourselves implicitly when we're younger. Yes. And then we start shape-shifting and kind of responding to whether it's praise or the opposite of. And and we for, we forget or we get out of touch with, with what we like. And I totally relate to that of, you know, where do you want to go for... Oh, I don't, I don't mind. I don't really genuinely have an opinion. And kind of really drilling down into what, what do you like? Yes. Like, I don't don't know. What do you mean? I'm like, whatever, whatever. And it's quite an unsettling place to be, to to realise that you've kind of lost touch with all of those things that, you know, feed you or or light you up Mm. or kind of guide you. And that's the, the job, I think, is kind of finding your way back to that. And do you think with your daughter, who do you say she's almost four? Yes. So... Has that helped you recover some of that in yourself, seeing that she has this instinct about the world? Yeah, Yeah. totally. And it can sometimes be, I mean, I remember early on, it was in a really kind of, it was quite sad for me. Um, Or I would feel almost a bit jealous at just how kind of, you know, sure she was or how in love with herself she was, you know. It was kind of like very pure but very powerful to observe when you've completely lost touch with with yourself you know so it was it was a real kick up the arse for me for sure I did Irish dancing for years and that became my world all of my energy was poured into that but you know you're not just one thing Mm. yeah and maybe actually that can be dangerous too because when you're concentrating on one thing and that's what people know you for oh you're the it, writer exactly yeah exactly or it's, it's the equivalent of once saying that you like cats and then getting cat themed christmas presents <laughs> every year for the rest of your life which happens to me by the way and i'm fine with it because i do love cats so okay. that's fine but it's Bring that thing like people are not very good i think particularly in britain and ireland they're not very good at seeing women specifically as being able to do multiple things it's like you can do one you're allowed one thing but then if you're going to be what you're an author and a podcaster and a journalist and like oh that's I can't that's not allowed almost like that's what I felt rightly or wrongly pick a lane that's what I felt for years Yeah. yeah I I felt that as well and I do think men you know, you're a re- oh, he's a real renaissance man. He can yes. throw his hand to anything. And then she's a greedy bitch. That one, she's yeah. doing what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. She never satisfies. 
side it's grasping. Just, leave a yeah. bit. Leave a bit for everybody else. And it's like, wow, I feel like I should be celebrated right now. <laughs> The thank you next. The thank you next moment for me is getting divorced when I was in my mid-30s. So I, as I previously said, spent my 20s in a mess of people-pleasing. And I went from one long-term relationship to the next. Because I think I was just constantly outsourcing my sense of self to someone else. I was like, if if I'm with someone romantically, it means I'm okay and I don't need to do a lot of self-examination. And like, that just became very dysfunctional. And it ended up with my marrying someone um, who I was with for seven years and it imploded in a way that I had never, ever anticipated because I had started doing fertility treatment and I was trying and failing to get pregnant. And I felt very, very alone in that. And I just realized that that was masking a deeper truth about my marriage, which wasn't working. And I never thought, and no one ever does, but I never thought I would be the person who would call time on a marriage. It was so important to me. And I felt an enormous degree of shame and failure around it. I felt I'd I'd let everyone down, including myself. And it just got to a point emotionally where I hit a wall and there was no other option. I can't really go into details as to why that was because it involves another person, my ex-husband, and he will have his own take on it. But I just got to a point where I was like, I need to leave or I will lose myself. And I left and I never knew that I was someone who would be able to do that. And... It was really devastating and unbelievably hard. And it took me a long time to process. And whilst not seeking to minimise any of that grief, eventually I realised that it also gave me this opportunity to live a life I hadn't anticipated. Because I hadn't anticipated being divorced in my mid-30s. I also hadn't anticipated what that would bring in a positive way, from a very negative place. So suddenly there was this like blank canvas where I had no plans. Like all of my projected notion of what my life would be personally hadn't come to fruition. So I was like, so what do I build in its space? And it was sort of the first time I'd asked myself what I, Elizabeth, truthfully wanted. And that's why I'm now so grateful for it. I'm so grateful for it. It was so hard. But I'm grateful for it for that reason because it made me realise that you c- it's never too late to change your life and you can live lots of different kinds of life. And I don't think I ever would have found my true self had I not gone through that. That's amazing. And it's an amazing way to look at it. Did it take you long, you know, to view it through that lens or did you kind of feel pretty quickly this is... An opportunity. Um, it took me, I would say, a year. You know, sometimes you end a relationship and you feel relief because you're like, oh, thank goodness. I didn't feel that, but I just felt there was no other way. 
in the midst of feeling such confusion and like I wasn't sure if I was doing the right thing fundamentally there was an element of peace as well there was no other choice really yeah that's how it felt to me that that is how it felt and so I think that sustained me that and my friends sustained me because they were the ones who were there saying no you're going to be okay and this is the right thing to do and these are the reasons why and I really needed that at the time when I was like finding my own voice again and finding my own instincts again I sort of needed my best friend to be like this is your instinct okay and I was like yes you're right that is and she knows me better than I know myself and I'm so grateful to her for that so I would say it took about a year to start thinking oh actually I could do anything I want now and and that was really freeing and I think it's so much braver. The label of marriage, you know, adds obviously a massive weight for loads of, of different reasons. But to stay in it and to get to a point, you know, much further down the road is much worse. Really, I think, you know, I was sort of lucky and unlucky in the same sense in that I really wanted children, but I didn't have them at that stage. And so that made it, cleaner because I think it's so incredibly hard and complicated and emotionally toxic to mm-hmm. have to decide whether you're going to leave a marriage when you have children because it's obviously going to affect that dynamic and your parenting yeah. and I think there's a great deal of bravery on both sides but at the time I didn't I, de- I didn't feel brave I felt I just I felt like a, I was felt yeah like a failure I really really did I felt like a coward in retrospect, I can see actually that was a, in some ways a really strong thing to do. But it's very hard to claim that when you know you've left a trail of emotional distress, especially for someone who believes in the power of love and the power of connection. So you sort of have to be at peace with that too. And, and in a way that taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about not being liked because for the first time in my life, I knew without doubt there were people who did not understand what I was doing, actively didn't like me for it. And I had to be okay with that because I knew the truth and I knew my truth. And so that made me resilient. Yeah, and you survived it. Yes. And that you can bear those like wild, heavy feelings and experiences. So in the midst of it, absolutely horrendous, but actually out the other end, there's a kind of strength in that that, you know, you don't get yeah without those harder things exactly the big thank you i think if we're leaving aside friends and family and all of that Mm -hmm. would actually go this sounds so self-aggrandizing but i'll tell you why i picked it to my listeners and readers so i feel doing my podcast how to fail was a risk that I took and the reason I wanted it to be about failure was because I felt like a failure in my own personal life and I was in a very vulnerable place and I decided to put that out there because it was cathartic for me to talk to other people about how they had survived failure and what they'd learned from it and I put out eight episodes in July 2018 and I didn't think it would go anywhere beyond that like I I believed in what I'd put out there and I had I felt really um free and at peace for having done it and I thought I'm so glad I've done that and it exists in the way that I want it to and I'm putting it out in the world with no expectation 
But then to find that those themes resonated with so many people and that it's grown and grown and grown Mm. has been one of the greatest gifts of my life. And the reason I put it in those terms is because those listeners allowed me to be myself. Authentically me, I believe, for the first time in my adult life. Mm. And it coincided with a period where I had got divorced and so I was really sort of struggling to find my footing again. Mm. And I'm just so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. And it's just brought me to a whole new audience Mm -hmm. and when I meet people who listen to the podcast and they say to me I feel like I know you I always say you do you really really know me and so that's been amazing so I'm incredibly thankful that those people have given me the gift of being myself Mm -hmm. and similarly with people who read my books you know an emotional truth of me that not everyone I know in my real life will know. So, so you, you also really know me. And, it, and it's such an honour to think that people give up their time to yeah. engage with that. So that's the big thanks. I totally get that. It felt like it was failure, you know, on a personal level or in your yes. personal life at the time. But I think as a topic, it's something we kind of often maybe up until recently have have been really afraid of like societally it's kind of the end year isn't it failure breaks you down and it kind of weakens you and it exposes you I think America have a much different attitude towards failure where it's kind of the beginning of of the next chapter and it's the foundations and it's what you need in order to bolster and and build you and something to overcome rather than something to uh, suggest you should throw in the towel but that whole conversation around failure feels like it's given us permission to not be ashamed of our failures Mm. hiding away behind them whether they're personal or professional or anything else yeah, that's such a generous thing to say. I, I think you're so right about the American thing, by the way. There's this whole thing in Silicon Valley, which is like, fail fast, fail often. Like, get your failures out of the way yeah. so you can get the massive success. And, and I think yeah. that has its place in the discourse. But also, it's important to say that not every failure is inevitably going to lead to you creating Facebook. You know? Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is um, just as well for the rest of us. Yes, More exactly. Enough. Exactly. Like, that, that some failures... <laughs> you might have to live with for the rest of your life and you might make a decision to be at peace with that and that in and of itself within that sadness there will be such a meaningful lesson and that's how I now choose to think of failure and I could never have predicted the conversation that it would become but I'm so glad it has had this impact because it makes me feel less alone and it makes yeah. me feel less ashamed and it ma- makes me feel more connected. And that really is all I think I could ask for as a, as a human being on this planet. Like connection is mm-hmm. the source of everything for me. And so I feel more connected with more people than I ever have before in my life. And I don't have to go out for dinner with them, which is even better because I'm also <laughs> an, weirdly an introvert. But it's, like, it's kind of, it's just the perfect form of intimacy for me. And I think that's what it is. It's just that I want the, the deep connection and not the superficial. Um, yeah, and I, and I think I've always kind of had that, which was quite awkward growing up. You know, I wasn't stuck in the middle of the dance floor. In my head, I was that girl. 
But yes. in reality, I was in a corner having a deep, meaningful conversation with somebody one on one that was like more serious than it needed to be. It was probably not the time or yes. a place. But like those were the moments. Yeah. That's what I was like always craving. Can you still Irish dance? Can you still remember the moves? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I so want to see that. You know, I used to Irish dance as well. Not anywhere near your Did I just you? used to take lessons. Yeah, I used to love it. Oh, my God. Okay, we need to make this happen. I can't remember it anymore, though. So oh, listen, you'll have to I'll bang on me. Riverdance. You'll feel it in your bones, babe. It never leaves you. <laughs> Three o'clock in the morning, you'll be there. <laughs> The main thing is, don't move your arms. Don't move And then move you're fine. Your then you look like a pro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, I said this to my husband recently. I was like, you know why people Irish dance with their arms by their side? And he was like, oh, Jesus, go on. <laughs> why? And I said, well, I heard this. Now, I'm pretty sure it's true. Apparently, it's not true. But that... Irish people, when we were like under the reign of terror of the English, yeah, we would like just stand up. I'm not going to do a reenactment of this, but like if we kept our arms by our side and danced like you know in a kind of measured fashion, they wouldn't know we were dancing. Oh my god! <laughs> and we were like just kind of shuffling by the window, but in reality we were dancing. He was like. I, I mean, I, I don't think that's true. It's like, it, it, no, it definitely is. I read it somewhere. Else. Or like you're all in a pub, but the English are overseeing you. You have to just they're outside the Oliver window. Cromwell's so out we've the window, got to like, <laughs> like pawn pieces on a chessboard, just gliding around. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm laughing, but also it's not funny. But also, much that image is just. Oh, bless you. You're just really... there with your raw potatoes and your shuffling legs and it's all you have. <laughs> <laughs> and look at me now. <laughs> okay, the present that I'm thankful for. Yes. Um, this was a really easy one, actually, because in November 2019, my now husband... Mm-hmm. Gave me a Peloton for my birthday. I saw you did 500 rides recently. <sighs> there she is. She's in the zone. Okay, go on. Okay. Peloton 2019. So, now, how did you feel yes. about that? Because this is pre-lockdown. So you're getting an yes. exercise bike from your lover. <laughs> from, yeah. <laughs> the only thing worse would be an iron. No. Yeah. I Okay. I felt conflicted about it for several reasons, yeah. but not the one that you might expect. In the, I loved going to spin classes. That was my exercise of choice. Okay. Justin, my other half, had tried a Peloton in a business hotel he was staying in. And he was like, I think you'd really like this thing called the Peloton. I was like, I absolutely will not like that because I need to go and have my favorite instructor shout at me to do tap backs. And he was like, give it a go. Anyway, the next time I stayed in a hotel that happened to have a Peloton in the gym, I tried it and I was like, this is actually really good because it recreated the atmosphere of a live okay. class in a way that I hadn't deemed possible. So fast forward to November 2019 and we it was pre-lockdown, as you say, and I was still going to the gym and I was still going to my spin classes. And then I saw this Peloton, which is like the most extraordinarily generous gift. And I was so grateful, number one. And number two, I was like, okay, I'll use it, but it definitely won't replace my need for like real life interaction with the instructors who are shouting me to do tap backs. Yeah, Fast forward a week, <laughs> I just stopped going to spin classes altogether because the Peloton became 
just this multi-purpose gym and Justin used it loads as well and then lockdown happened and honestly that bike saved our sanity because we were so lucky and I appreciate that it is one of those things that you need to be able to have the funds to buy one in the first Mm -hmm. place so I'm so grateful for that but it turns out to be cheaper than our gym memberships and it meant that every day we could do a, a bit of exercise, feel connected because there's a whole community around yeah. it and do it according to our own timetables. And it just honestly got us through some really, really hard times. I'm so grateful for it and to it and to the instructors who are essentially like motivational speakers with amazing music taste. Yeah, now like celebrities in their own right. I bet the Peloton also kind of really appeals to your competitive nature. (laughs) Yes. Well, now I had a whole thing with this where I went through a low patch where I was like, why is Justin better than me? Because (laughs) I'd been doing swing classes for years and suddenly he gets on the peloton and because of his higher density muscle mass Mm -hmm. can completely like just knock out an output that is double mine. And it honestly... We had like it really bothered me. We had to have like sit down conversations about it. I was like, I just don't understand why. And he was so patient. He was like, it's only because I've got more muscles because I'm built a certain way. And anyway, I I really had to have a good talking to myself and be like, I cannot compete with because who knows who else is on the ride at the same time? Uh, yeah. Because a lot of athletes use it. Yeah. A lot of sort of former Olympic gold medalists. David Beckham has one. Like I can't possibly hope to compete with them. <laughs> So I try as much as possible now just to enjoy it, just to compete with myself, compete Angela, with which is also annoying. But but sometimes I experiment with just like turning the numbers off and just doing it for the joy. But okay. to get sort of serious for a minute, I was pregnant and then I had my third miscarriage in the middle of the first national lockdown. And thank you, darling. It was really tough. And one of the things that genuinely helped me reclaim myself and my body was the peloton Mm. once the actual miscarriage had happened and I had allowed myself time physically to recover getting back on that bike and feeling myself and feeling like I was doing something constructive every day in a little way was very, very therapeutic. And it's helped me in that way as well. Before I let you go, what is your hashtag blessed moment? My hashtag blessed moment is anytime I stroke my cat Huxley. (laughs) You love that cat. I love him so much. He is such a beauty and actually in colouring terms, you remind me of him. So that's the biggest compliment. I mean, he's basically mine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If we had one like him called Marmalade back in the day. Yeah. I think ginger cats are very special and very, generally speaking, very sociable. And he is. And he just brings me back to the present any time I stroke his floofy tummy and um, I feel very connected to him. <laughs> I genuinely do. Like I think, on a soul I think we have level. a good thing going on. on yeah. I, yeah, I sort of do. I think he's mm-hmm. a wise soul and um, he brings me a lot of joy and calm and also... I constantly have to wash my black leggings because there are just ginger hairs all over them. But I do feel genuinely blessed to have him in my life. Oh, lovely. Huxley, the hairy little 
beauty. It's like a therapy yeah. animal. They are, My hairy they? guru. Yeah, totally. Guru. Mine is slightly <laughs> different. <laughs> um, okay, brilliant. Huxley for the win. Never mind Kim Kardashian. Huxley. <laughs> it's going in. Thank you so much to Elizabeth. Her latest novel, the Sunday Times bestseller, Magpie, is out now and it is absolutely brilliant. And like I said, US listeners, it's out there now too with a delicious cover. I hope you're enjoying Series 5 so far. Oh, and watch out for my new book, Joyrider, how gratitude can help you get the life you really want. It's got a cracking cover, guys. Cracking. Lovely for your bookshelf. I'd like, ideally, for you to read it as well. But, you know, that's up to you. I can't hold you over a barrel. You can pre-order it now. Just head down below there to the show notes or in my weekly newsletter, you'll get a little nudge and a wink if you sign up to that. If you wouldn't mind, leave us a little review, five star only, please. And if you share the review on Instagram every week, I am going to pick one winner and send you a signed copy of my new book and I will sign it personally for you and once it's out in May I will send it to your home I'll even spritz a bit of perfume on it tell your ma your dad your dog everyone you know really and if this has sparked any thoughts or ideas about what you are thankful for do share just use the hashtag thanks a million trio and tag me at Angela Scanlon via Instagram and Twitter Thanks a Million is produced by Louise Mason at Rethink Audio. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Hold up. 